Oh, kinfolk, happy Sunday. And happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Whether you are a father or you father in other ways, you have a father. You have a father in heaven. Father's Day was created in Spokane, Washington in 1910. A woman named Sonora Smart Dodd. She was a leader at the local YMCA in Spokane, and she wanted to honor, uh, honor her dad, who was a Civil War veteran, and who as a single father raised six children in Spokane following the war. So she created Father's Day. And today is also Juneteenth, federal holiday. Uh, it celebrates uh, the day on June 19, 1865, when General Order Number 3 was proclaimed the people of Texas by uh, Union General Gordon Granger. It's a federal holiday. The banks are closed today, so I hope you've got all your work done. And uh, Juneteenth um, marks an important turning point in the history of this nation, a day when all Americans began to receive their suffrage and rights. Beloved siblings, let us pray. Eternal and powerful creator, strong to save, spirit of truth and justice, Dwell with us for this time and open our hearts to receive a word, Lord. Amen. Well, I've likely preached on the Gerasene demoniac today's reading uh, half a dozen times. Uh, it is a profoundly touching story. A man so full of pain and suffering, his demons countless and in legion, and he's been stripped of his clothing and his humanity and his citizenship. And he's been chained to the tombs by the people in his own village. This is an illustration of the way that Jesus ministered and healed. And if I had to choose just one healing ministry from Jesus' entire ministry to study forever, I'd probably go with this one. We have spoken before about spiritual immaturity and idolatry and all of the small voices that cry out for our attention. And we've talked together about how to discern the true word of prophecy and truth from the noise of the preachers and politicians and people on the TV, other speech mongers. And I've always said that the simplest thing I know is to simply listen and listen to what we're hearing and what we're being asked to do and just see if it rhymes with the teachings and actions of Jesus Christ. It's know Jesus and know the truth of God's desire for the world. It isn't much more complicated than that. You can just check the answer key. It's right in here. Today we have a lovely example of how Jesus behaved. Compare the behavior of the people who you follow in this world to Jesus' behavior in today's gospel lesson. Jesus comes ashore and there's this terrifying man, stark naked, smelling of these open tombs, and he throws himself at Jesus' feet. Now a lot of people presume to talk for Jesus. But I want you to imagine what the people would do in that situation. A sick, tormented, naked man throwing himself at their feet. Now, I have a friend who is a traveler. Six months of the year he works on the East Coast. He rides the rails and the Greyhounds. And he had, his name's Joe. He had bladder cancer. He arrived on the Amtrak train in Kalamazoo, Michigan on a Sunday morning. He was walking up the road to try to get to his friend's house and disheveled, his catheter came out 
And he limped into the nearest church he could find, looking for help, looking for a ride to the hospital. And they called the cops on him. They had him sit in the narthex. And they said, we're going to get you help. And they called the cops. Cops came, put him in the back of the cop car, drove him to the end of the church driveway, dropped him off and said, you're trespassed from this property. You're not allowed to come back to this church. He limped to my house. I took him to the hospital. That is the man throwing himself right at the feet of Jesus Christ. That's not Jesus' behavior. This sick man, this poor man, beset by demons, throws himself before Jesus at the height of Jesus' popularity and ministry. Jesus is not some random rabbi at this point. He is a known local celebrity. And Jesus heals the man, drives the demons out of him into a herd of pigs. Pigs go crazy, run off the mountain, drown in the sea. Sad business for the pigs. I always point out, probably shouldn't have been raising pigs in Israel anyway. Not exactly kosher. Don't know what those pigs, I mean, that's literally not kosher, right? I mean, those pigs weren't being raised for pets. <laughs> All right, so listen to what it says about the rest of the villagers, right? All the people of the surrounding country asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. Fear. That's such a weird inclusion. I went back and checked the Greek because I was surprised by that, and it's accurate. The word in the Greek is phobos. Phobos. Fear, as in xenophobic, homophobic, transphobic. The villagers have phobos, fear. It means a kind of intimidation. It's a kind of shame that they have. They ought to be ashamed because instead of helping their brother, their sick brother, they chained him to the tombs to keep him out of town. Place, chained him to the place where dead things are kept. But Jesus does his best work with the things of the world that people assume are dead. Amen? God works with dead things to create resurrection. And there's a little bit of humor in this story, too, that's poignant and beautiful, because it would have made perfect sense for this man that Jesus healed to become one of his disciples. That's what he wanted. In fact, it says the man got into the boat with Jesus and his followers as they were preparing to leave. But Jesus says, no, you stay here. They can't keep you out in the tombs anymore. So you go minister to them. Hmm, Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God's done for you. And so he did. He went away, proclaiming throughout his city how much Jesus had done for him. So those people, those self-same people who had chained this man to the tomb, those regular, ordinary, everyday people, will be reminded of what they did. Every time they see this man preaching the truth, every time they see him, they'll remember that they bound him to a tomb and left him to die. What permits a human being to throw away all of their decency and take another person and throw them into a tomb. What lodestone is so powerful that it can twist and bend the needle of our moral compass towards such hatefulness? I don't have a good answer for this. I used to think it was money or power or fame or something like that, but I see regular, ordinary people participating in this kind of behavior. Way back before graduate school, back before Vanderbilt, before Chicago Seminary, I was an undergraduate at the Western Michigan University. 
because it was the school that I could get into with the grades that I had achieved. And they have a degree there. It's a baccalaureate minor that you could take called ethics. And I didn't mean to get that minor, but I was so fascinated by the coursework that I ended up just taking all of the necessary classes out of my own interests. And the word that I learned, the word I learned from that coursework that fits best at explaining this kind of horrible behavior we're hearing about today was dehumanization. Dehumanization. Now, at the surface, this seems like a silly word, because after all, we've known for hundreds of thousands of years what a human is, what other animals are. How can you make some, someone that's a human into something that isn't? It's, uh, it takes practice. It takes determination. And in order to do it, these people have to lie to themselves. They have to get really good at lying to themselves about this. And sadly, humans are very good at that. The people in that village in the Gerasenes, they lied to themselves. They lied to themselves about the man that they had thrown into the tombs. They lied to themselves and they repeated the lie to one another over and over again until it felt comfortable, until it felt like the truth. And here's the, here's the simple lie that they told themselves. They said, he's not really a human being. He's not really a human being. And that's how dehumanization works. It's a method that people use to tell themselves a comforting lie as they commit crimes against humanity, in the literal sense. When I was a little boy, my father taught me some principles that he said I had to believe in. He said I had to believe in my principles even if every single person around me told me that I was wrong or that they would kill me if I didn't change or that I would lose everything if I stuck to my principles. And he made me swear that I would stand by the principles no matter what. Better to die, he said to his second son, than betray your principles. Um, and the principles that he gave me were called the categorical imperative, and I don't want to get lost in the weeds with this. The second principle that he gave to me was he said to me, never forget that our rights come from God, not the government. Our rights come from God, not the government. I don't know very many people who believe this anymore today, honestly. I think they say it, but they don't really believe it. Because it seems like these days in America, you've got to get a special piece of paper or something from the government a little stamp on it that says citizenship before you get any rights. What a ridiculous thing. I went on after that ethics degree, I got a pre-law degree in constitutional law from Western Michigan University. I learned in that class that the United States Constitution applies to every single human being standing on US soil, regardless of their citizenship status. Did you know that? That's the truth. And you want to know why the U.S. Constitution applies to every single human being standing on U.S. soil, regardless of their citizenship status? It's because our rights come from God and not the government. Our government has perpetrated crimes against humanity in the past. Today is Juneteenth, where we acknowledge that slavery happened in America and that there were Americans who were enslaved. They were Americans as soon as they set foot on U.S. soil, and they were sold into chattel slavery. And we had to create an entire system called race science in order to lie to ourselves about whether or not these people were humans, let alone Americans. And then we had to fight a brutal and awful civil war over this issue, and frankly, it bothers me that so often it is taught to young 
people that the Union won the Civil War. The Union didn't win the Civil War. America won the Civil War. America won the Civil War, for there would be no America had we not won that war. So all of this is about dehumanization. Christ confronts this. The villagers had tied that man to the tomb for everyday ordinary people walking by. It must be okay, right? It must be the normal thing to do. But this is where God tests the metal of the people against the values of God's own peace. This is what is meant by the bandied about phrase, spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is that we prepare for all we do by refusing to participate in dehumanization. Simply refuse to participate. Refuse the order from the powers and principalities and the thing is, it is insufficient and anemic to simply refuse to dehumanize those with whom we empathize. We must also refuse to dehumanize criminals. People in our prisons and jails, though they be locked up, we must refuse to dehumanize them. That is the hard thing. The hard thing is not to refuse to participate so much in the dehumanization of the innocent, but also the guilty. The stain of the crimes is on our human souls, and so we can't permit ourselves to dehumanize anybody. Now, slavery, that brutal crime, the crime of claiming that a certain human being is not a human being, is and was a tremendous burden on the soul of this nation. And it is one that we continue to heal from today. We do it by celebrating Juneteenth. And so many of us also, fathers, bear the burden of being failed by those who were supposed to be our own fathers. But we refuse to dehumanize them. And so we continue to celebrate because we're not helpless. We're not helpless. In any of this, we're not helpless. Thank God that God is watching and Peter is rowing the boat to the shore of the Gerasenes. Even now, and even now, the body of Jesus Christ is stepping out of that boat onto the shore and the eyes of Jesus are upon the wounded and the outcast, the sick, the poor, the refugee, the asylee, the child withering in a cage. Even now, that self-same Savior is raising his hands in the ancient and holy gestures of exorcism and it will not stand. I have no idea how long that man was chained to the tombs. And I know that the shame of the Gerasenes was written forever into the book of life. And likely, the shame of Americans who've participated in dehumanization will be part of our history. But it is not the end of the story because I know what became of that man who was chained to the tombs and I know what became of his healer the savior of the world. This world, like that man, is bound for resurrection. This world is not a tomb. The baptism of Jesus Christ is not an end, and it is not a place where the dead remain dead, because God won't permit it. Even now, when we see crimes committed against human beings, we are the body of Christ raising our hands in defiance and casting out demons. We are casting them to drown in the depths of the sea. Even now we're preparing for exorcism to fight to free them from the tombs. You and I, 
the body of Christ at work in the world, going to fight, and we're going to win. And then we're going to rejoice in the power of God. This is the truth. It's the truth. It is grace, cover to cover. And we know how the story ends. Amen? Amen.